everyone and what's up and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and crypto assets. I'm your host as ever, Ahmed Al-Balaghi. Boy, I'm super, super excited for this episode. In this episode, I am back in China. Back in China again in my favorite place, Shanghai. And I'm there for the Shanghai Blockchain Week. And in this episode, I'm joined by a crypto OG, David Johnston, a very dear friend for the past three years in this space. And in this awesome episode, we discuss how blockchain solved an interesting legal court case between two Chinese tech giants, TikTok and Baidu, why Switzerland is a global blockchain hub, and why homeschooling rocks. Yes, we pretty much covered so many topics in this episode. Before we start, I want to give a shout out to two of our sponsors. CBX, which is a multinational exchange with clients in over 50 countries. Not only does it have a delightful experience, but it's always a benefit to personally know the founders of CBX who have quite an experienced background in financial markets. And so I place a great faith in the operations and security of this exchange. What's more, CBX regularly has new project listings and mini promotions, and just by having an account, you'll be entered into the airdrops program on a weekly basis. So I invite you all to check them out at cbx.one to trade your cryptocurrencies. Second shout out is to Gibral, a blockchain project that focuses on working with institutions and banks to introduce novel techniques of money transfer and value exchange. This cutting edge blockchain project engages with Islamic finance as shown by their work on digital sukuk bonds with El Hilal Bank and their ongoing work with central banks in this region. I'd really like to thank those who've been supporting the show and remember you could support us in any way possible. You could subscribe, rate and review the show, sharing the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to Encrypted. My name is Ahmed Al-Balaghi. I'm currently in Shanghai Blockchain Week. If you've been following, I was in Berlin Blockchain Week a couple weeks back and lucky enough to be here in Shanghai. I am overlooking Pudong on this beautiful sunny day alongside an amazing old friend, David Johnston. Say hello. Hello. Great to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I mean, this is one of my favorite conferences every year. So this is my fifth year speaking at the Global Blockchain Summit. So I did 2015, 16, 17, 18, and now 2019. So I guess they keep inviting me back. It's fun. Awesome stuff. Yeah. So I I mean, I remember my first one, I believe, was in 2016. And then I've been to the 2018 one and there's a 2019 one. I missed a 2017 one, unfortunately. But yeah, no, it's a great conference. How how does this one compare to to the previous ones? So they always do a pretty amazing job of filtering out sort of the best speakers and the best topics. There's no pay to play. There's no sort of like corporate talks. It is really focused on the technology what's sort of pushing the envelope. Uh, So they keep it very focused on the research side, which is nice, right? I mean, there's a lot of noise in the industry with pitches, pitches, constant pitches. And there is a startup element, but they put it into a hackathon. That makes up the first couple of days of the blockchain week. And I had a lot of fun. I went again this year to the hackathon. You see like 25 teams, like 100 developers coming together, trying to win all these prizes around building blockchain tech. So I think that's a good way to organize it. And then they roll into a demo day and then you have this whole focus on, all right, now how does industry use this technology? But no, they just do an amazing job of organizing it. They've got like 1,200 people. They cap the number of attendees so it doesn't get crazy like thousands of people. So it's small enough that you can really interact with 
with a lot of the people that attend, but not so small that, you know, sort of it's, it's a limited pool. So they did a good job. They mix a lot of international people, but also a lot of local companies. So it's not all the same people you see at the other conferences. Absolutely. I, I've, I definitely feel the same way about that. So the first time we actually properly met and talked, I guess, was a couple of years ago in that amazing restaurant. And we talked about one of the things that you mentioned, or I think you, you basically paraphrased many years ago in this industry, which is anything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. Could you explain what that means? Sure. So I put this forward jokingly in 2014 at Coin Summit in San Francisco as Johnston's Law. Okay. <laughs> everything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. And, and I thought it was sort of a, a simple truism, right? You know, this technology is allowing us to remove all these middlemen, all these people that are rent seeking in financial industries and in the economy in general. And so if people can decentralize a system, they will, right? I mean, it makes economic sense. If somebody is, you know, sitting in the middle and taking 40, 50% of the transactions sometimes, right? Like the case of YouTube sitting in between content creators and people that want to watch the content. I mean, that's an enormous burden. And, you know, it loses most of the economics yeah. to the creator who's actually making the value, right? And so, it seems logical that one by one, we're going to take these use cases on and remove the middleman. Now that we have the way to do payments, you have the way to do escrow, blockchain gives you all these new tools. So it's been really cool to see that sort of evolve into reality, yeah. you know, one by one, right? Uh, shortly after you had the launch of Ethereum and that gave you all of these tokens that were sort of going after each of these use cases. And so it's been pretty amazing to see that evolve. But has there anything that's caught your eye other than Bitcoin that is decentralized? Sure. I mean, there's tons of stuff, right? So record keeping has been decentralized by Factum and smart contracts have been decentralized by Ethereum. Polymath and other groups are trying to decentralize securities, right, with security tokens. There's this whole crop of decentralized stablecoins for gold and silver and all these commodities. The recent project I've really been excited about is Pegnet, P-E-G-N-E-T. Pegnet is this network of stablecoins that peg to any market price that is published on the system, and it's fully decentralized. There's no custodian, there's no reserve. It's all on chain, so it's 100% auditable. From a technical perspective, you can basically think about it as like a state channel on top of Ethereum dedicated to stablecoins, right? And it's it's pretty genius, and, and it's all secured by proof-of-work mining. So it feels like those early days of Bitcoin where like anybody with a CPU can mine and publish these Oracle prices. So it's very community-driven. There's no ICO, there's no foundation. It's just this open source community effort, which is really cool to see. So yeah, I think, you know, you look use case by use case and there's smart people going after each of these industries because, you know, why not put that money back in the hands of the people really creating the value versus somebody sitting in the middle? So I'll go a bit deeper into that. But what's actually working that's decentralized other than Bitcoin and smart contracts on Ethereum, as in that has really kind of hit the, the mainstream to have, you know, made people aware of what's going on. Everyone's probably heard of Bitcoin and we see everything else is an experiment, at least from my opinion. You know, even like, for example, Compound Finance, which is an amazing sort of protocol which allows sort of people to lend and then sort of to lending in a decentralized way is very fascinating. But it's just very, it's just for the crypto community currently. Mm. 
I mean, other than Bitcoin, which is slightly mainstream, is there anything else out there you think? Well, I think over time, people are going to be less and less aware of the technical stack behind things, mm -hmm. right? I mean, most people don't think about the inner workings of the internet when they're using Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram or anything, right? It's just we've created these easy-to-use interfaces, and people use it because it's faster and cheaper and better, right? So we're going to get to the same thing with blockchain. People are going to be using blockchain. They're not going to even realize it. So I'll give you a good example with Factum. They've secured hundreds of millions of business records on top of Factum. I mean, it is the most used data layer on top of the blockchain today, right? It anchors into Bitcoin and Ethereum. And one of the uses was a company here in China, in Hangzhou, that notarized 100 million business documents from their customers that wanted to notarize business contracts. And a small number of those were from TikTok. TikTok based in Beijing, right, Chinese company, and they probably didn't even know it, but this a notary service they were using was using Factum as a backend to anchor all of those documents in the blockchain. So a few years later, they get in a court battle with Baidu, and Baidu says, well, you know, blockchain records don't count. These aren't proof that TikTok, you know, did this copyright thing first. <laughs> and the judge decides blockchain records are proof. And then it ended up going all the way to the Chinese Supreme Court, and they confirmed that blockchain records on Factum anchored into Bitcoin are proof in Chinese court. I mean, it settled this case between TikTok and Baidu, and they probably ended up down that road without even sort of realizing that's where they headed because these companies were already using the tech in the back end to validate and secure these records. So it wasn't their word versus somebody else's word. It was just math, right? And so I don't know how much more mainstream it gets than winning a Supreme Court case between two Chinese companies, but that's a use case that's really exciting in the developing world where there's sort of different presumptions around courts and everything like that. You know, in the U.S., there's all these electronic signature laws that sort of already established that in the 2000s. But here, you know, that's really groundbreaking. And so I would say you have to have a very global perspective to see yeah. where things have been very compelling for people. Okay, so that's awesome. I, I wish you had told me this earlier. That, that That's a really <laughs> cool story. So, okay, so to dig in a bit about you, we, we haven't introduced yourself yet. So you said Factum a couple of times. Can you quickly sort of talk about how you got into this industry and sure. how Factum came about? Sure. So for me, I was a serial entrepreneur, built 10 different tech companies before I was 30. So I started when I was a kid making internet companies, like mm. back when like online publishing was cutting edge. So I'll date myself like a little bit there, okay. like early 2000s, right? Ended up, actually one of the startups I built was inside of Second Life, doing uh, investments inside of there. So that was my first exposure to virtual currency back in 2006. So pre-Bitcoin days, right? It was centralized, but it was digital, right? It was instant, which was really cool. And so when I finally discovered Bitcoin in 2012, right? I was like, oh, I've seen what happens here, right? People create assets, people create securities. They, you know, do all this cool stuff with digital currency. And this time it's global. This time it isn't controlled by a company in California. It's decentralized. And so Wow, I was blown away. I, I started converting all of my money into Bitcoin. I already believed in free market economics. I wasn't a big fan of U.S. inflation. And so I was happy to 
shelter inside of, of Bitcoin. And so that gave me the money to start investing. Ended up uh, starting BitAngels in 2013 with Michael Turpin and Sam Yilmaz and a bunch of the earlier early investors. And so that got us into MasterCoin and Ethereum and all these early protocols. We ended up knowing the technologists and the founders because they all came to the first Bitcoin angel group, which is BitAngels, right? Yeah. Really sort of what most people know me for is probably dApps. So in December of 13, I wrote the white paper for decentralized applications. So I joke that Charles did DAOs and Dan did DAX and I did DAPs, right? So there was all kind of a churning around that late 2013 time period. And yeah, and from there, you know, I've been fully focused on building decentralized protocols. So I was hanging out with Paul Snow at the January 2014 Miami Bitcoin conference, okay. right? The okay. epic one where Ethereum was first announced by Vitalik. And I was hanging out with Paul and I was, you know, challenging him, you know, how can we do more advanced decentralization, right? How can we put things more than money, but data, you know, and programs and scripts and all these things on, on blockchain. And that's sort of the origin conversation where he invented Factum and thought, oh, we can use the blockchain as this way of securing all of these records. We could use Merkle trees to do it very efficiently. And he started working and wrote the white paper and September of 2015, the Factum Network launched. has been live as one of sort of those early OG protocols ever yeah. since, anchoring into Bitcoin and eventually uh, started anchoring into Ethereum. So it basically gets its security from those big protocols, right? It submits a transaction every 10 minutes to, yeah. to Bitcoin and Ether. And, you know, it gave sort of a whole new perspective of, look, this is about more than money. This is about data. We need to secure all the world's records on blockchain. That's how we create real honesty. Real trust is just have mathematical proofs mm -hmm. that are anchoring to blockchain. So it's been a cool journey to see all that evolve. And now people are building all kinds of stuff on, on top of Factum, even beyond record keeping. The PegNet is a good recent example. It's like, oh, well, you know, records of stable coins mm -hmm. are a type of record. Let's use all this infrastructure, just create a DApp on top and use this new use case because okay. There's a lot of traction right now for all sorts of stable coins. Why not use sort of all the immutable data powers of Factum to apply to those use cases? Okay. So yeah, I serve as the chairman of board for the Factum Inc. company, which is separate than the, the open source. But people think of me in that, that yeah. uh, frame usually, but I have about 40 investments mm -hmm. across blockchain. So uh, work with the Polymath guys, work with Abacus, with Multicoin, like all these different projects. I'm just passionate about the space and... People ask me to talk about these things, so I usually end up the one going to the conference yeah. and explaining it. So Awesome stuff. No, it's a really, really cool journey that you've had. And okay, so in terms of the different ecosystems that you've seen, which ecosystem do you think ranks the highest? Is it SF? Is it Shanghai? Is it Beijing? Is it Berlin? What What do you think is, is the sort of the most advanced and the one that will probably have that killer app or that, you know, killer protocol that will come out? Switzerland, hands down. I mean, already half of the world's blockchain foundations are based in Switzerland. Another way of saying that is all the other world's countries combined equal the user base of Switzerland when it comes to especially decentralized protocols. You know, Ethereum, you look at the top 20, I think one is based in the US. Okay. Like the US is not the center of blockchain in any way, shape or form. Mm. Right. And so, you know, I'm spending a lot more time in Switzerland. I've been visiting there since 2011, you know, for crypto purposes since 2013, 2014. But I'm making a lot of investments there. I'm spending more time uh, moving my family there. So I'm uh, excited about that wow. later this year. 
And yeah, I mean, I, I thought sort of uh, calling it Crypto Valley, you know, was, was sort of a bit cheesy at first, but they've really earned the title. They've got the friendliest regulations. So as an entrepreneur, you know what you can build. You know how they define utility tokens, payment tokens, security tokens. Like you've got a greenfield. You know what the rules are. And I can't really say that in the US or any other major economies. Yeah. And so just having that clear rule book is, is key, right, as an entrepreneur. I you know a lot of great groups out of Silicon Valley in 2017. They raised a lot of money. They just gave it back. We can't figure out how to do this. We, we don't know what the rules are. The lawyers won't tell us. Like... We give up. And that's wow. a shame, right? Because yeah. they were planning to disrupt YouTube and all these groups yeah. that, you know, are, are rent seeking on top of all these platforms. But you have to be willing to do what Vitalik did. You have to be willing to go to where it makes sense, right? Yeah. Vitalik's journey, right, started in North America, right? He's out of Toronto and they recruited all these great developers. He took them to Switzerland. They set up the foundation there. Then they came to Asia and really built communities here, right? For mass adoption and for capital. And that's a great combination. That's what I want to see more of. Okay. So I want to encourage more startups to get into Crypto Valley. Okay. And, and you could you could make a lot of arguments for other great hubs, but let me list a few. After Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Malta, Gibraltar, Berlin, Munich, London. Where are all of these places? They're in Europe, right? And uh, you could say Singapore, and then they've got some stuff going for them, but there's still not that same level of clarity or stability when it comes to uh, the regulations. Hopefully it'll get there. But if you want to be at the center of the crypto world, I think it's in Switzerland. Okay. I definitely would agree in regards to Switzerland. I wouldn't probably agree with Malta mm -hmm. and Gibraltar if it's particularly for security token uses. The reason being is because I don't see London or at least the major financial hubs who will be very clear about these security tokens and then people just flock to London instead of Malta. Yeah. It's just Malta is a good short term, right? But yeah, but I, I def but it's interesting how you mentioned Europe as a as a place where they've actually sort of built the rules so that people who come in and and do something. Okay. Well and I think that'll be pretty surprising for a lot of people. Because yeah. you presume Silicon Valley is at the heart of everything, but that's not the case when it comes to crypto. And so it's going to be a big benefit mm. to Europe, to Germany and Switzerland and London, I think in particular, where a lot of the big tech hubs, you look at the rankings, it's London, Berlin, Munich and Zurich, right? Yeah. I mean, that's where most of the startups in Europe are based. And so I think that'll continue to increase as we have this huge wealth transfer from the old systems into blockchain systems, like that's where it's going to go. And okay. they'll get a benefit similar to what Silicon Valley did in the 90s and 2000s, right? And so, no, it's, 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 you, you make a good point, right? Because it's not enough to have just clear rules. You also have to have scale. And that's why I think Switzerland sits at this intersection between it's big enough. All the big tech companies have huge offices in Zurich. Yeah. Google has campuses there. Everybody has campuses there. So it's big enough, but it's still small enough where they're fast moving. They've given them the clear regulation and they're going for sort of building that network effect. Okay. All right. So I have a sort of a couple of like quick fire on questions as well. I want, I'd like to hear your opinions on. So if Bitcoin and Ethereum were falling off a cliff, which one would you save and why? I'd say if Ethereum because it's more scalable, has more users, has more transactions, has most of the DeFi applications that are being built today. If you look at the stablecoin volumes, they're all moving to Ethereum. So, yeah, if we need one to survive, I'm going to spend my time on Ethereum. <laughs> I probably came to that conclusion, I don't know, 2017. In October 2017. 
November of 2017. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Just one more difference. <laughs> <laughs> well, why November 2017? What was that flipping or turning point that, that made you aware of that? I stopped spending much time on Bitcoin after it's clear they didn't have a scalability plan. And so without a scalability plan, this isn't going to serve 8 billion people. So I believe that the Ethereum team is much more serious about scaling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wish Bitcoin well. You know, it may end up being a large scale settlement system for big transactions. You need super high security. I get they're making very conservative choices. But I think you have to still have a serious scaling plan. And so I respect the work that the Ethereum teams have done. They're taking multiple approaches. They have multiple teams. They have multiple implementations of the software, right? They're embracing state channels and all these different ways of scaling the technology. And so, yeah, I think that's going to and has won them most of the developers in the ecosystem and most of the people that are building the most interesting tech. It's it's all Ethereum. Like I'm looking forward to going to uh, DevCon in a little while. And it's one of the most refreshing things every year. Here are 3000 engineers all building incredible tech. Like, so, yeah, I mean, for me, and this is a guy who, you know, was all Bitcoin in 2012, right? Like I, I believe in the ethos. And so... But for, for me, I, I, I want to see the things that are going to reach the average person, mm-hmm. right? If we're building gold 2.0, I mean, that's great. More power to them. I hope that succeeds. But I think there's a bigger vision for finance that accesses, you know, people that are totally underserved today. Okay. What is the one thing that has made you the person you are today? Ah, uh, that's a good question. You know, growing up influences from my grandfather on sort of like economics and metals and you know is a gold bug certainly influenced my thinking in that respect my mother was very entrepreneurial and is very entrepreneurial built a number of small businesses and so that was very inspiring my uncle who built a small business my father who had a passion for history and you know sort of delving into technology a lot of early exposure to computers and networks and uh, internet and all that so uh, no i really owe it to those people in my life that invested sort of giving me those different skills and perspectives so that's probably shaped me the most especially since i was homeschooled for the first six years of my education so i pretty much had free reign to learn about anything i was interested in i got six years of public school on the back end it was pretty boring and I usually most mostly use the time to build startups. Yeah. And I was kind of opting out of classes and dropped out of college after one semester. And, you know, I, no one has ever cared since, right? They're more interested in what I've built and the projects I've done on a piece of paper that hangs on a wall. So homeschooling, I've got a few friends actually who've, who are homeschooling their kids. I, I still don't get it. As in like, mm-hmm. is it the parents teaching the, the kids? Is, it, is there a tutor coming in? How, how are you homeschooled? Uh, well, it's sort of choose your own adventure, right? Okay. So you can make homeschooling or unschooling whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times parents are involved, especially early on. It's not rocket science to teach arithmetic and yeah, reading yeah. and stuff sure. like that. You know, and as it goes, we've got all the world's information at your fingertips these days, right? I mean, there's a massive online course for just about everything that you'd want to learn. And then you can have tutors. A lot of people will have sort of organized classes one or two days a week. Mm-hmm but not five days a week. So often there's sort of homeschool groups. So my mom organized one in our church that had like 40 different families. And we'd go on field trips and we'd go to science museums and we'd go to DC and we'd go to, you know, explore all of these things. My, my, and I was used to that on basically a monthly basis. My entire time in public school, we went on one field trip, right? That's the juxtaposition. That's the comparison, right? You know, I got 
one-on-one attention and you could effectively finish your entire studies in two or three hours between like 10 a.m. And, and noon, finish for lunch. Whereas, you know, in public school, you effectively go as fast as the slowest kid. Like senior year, honors English. I kid you not, they still started by teaching nouns and verbs and adjectives because there was somebody who hadn't got them that far yet, senior year of high school, right? So there wasn't a lot of learning going on in, in public institutions. And the thing I also find is, is very valuable is socialization. So I think there's much better socialization in homeschool than in public school. What do you mean by socialization? Uh, basic human behavior and knowing, you know, adult behavior as opposed to child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think you get much better social learning Mm. in an environment where I call it uh, vertical socialization. You're learning from somebody who is more mature versus surrounded by 35 other kids that are at the same level as you. They don't have anything to teach you. So it's like horizontal versus vertical. And it's like, I guess you'd automatically feel a bit more um, confident because there's more one-on-one attention. Yeah, I mean, this is how I built tech companies when I was 14 and 16 and 18 because I could look an adult in the eye. I knew how to articulate myself. I was used to interacting with adults, my my parents, my friends' parents yeah. who were working at NASA and were engineers and who were doctors or worked in the government. Like None of that was intimidating mm. as an 18-year-old because those were my peers. Those are the people that I interacted with. I went into public school. They couldn't look you in the eye. They didn't have vocabulary. They had no interests outside of school. They weren't following history or politics or economics or anything else, right? They were in this little bubble and they were insulated in this little bubble. And I I think that's the worst thing you can do to a kid is insulate them for 26 years until they get out of, you know, their master's program in college and they've never worked a job and never interacted with adults. They're kept in this, you know, perpetual adolescence. And so I find that if kids have more time with adults, they interact better in an adult world. Like all I learned in public school is how to deal with delinquents. Like, okay, I mean, that's useful in like, I guess, prison and school, but like outside of that, I've never used those skills like in the adult world, right? Okay. So I, I don't know. I, I find it funny that often people would say the opposite. They would say, oh, homeschoolers, this is a, they're a bit weird. But I usually find what that really means is they're not used to a kid interacting with them like an adult. Right. And that's often what they really mean by these homeschoolers are are strange because they don't act like children. They act more like adults because that's who they're around and that's who they learn. You know, and I'd say there's a balance. I had plenty of time playing with kids. You know, school was out, you know, go play in the neighborhood, go play sports. I had tons of that. So I got both. So, you know, I think I was lucky to have that experience. Okay, I I literally did not expect to have this conversation (laughs) today on this podcast. All right. So if if I could put one more plug in for homeschooling is it's really taken, especially the U.S. by storm. Okay. When, I, when I was homeschooled, there were only about a quarter of 1% of kids were homeschooled. I think in the U.S. it's now broken 3%. So there's 10 or 20x. And it's probably a reflection of the resources that are available, yeah. the degradation of the public system, people pulling them out. It tends to be better educated, better socioeconomic group, have the ability right, to spend the time and energy mm-hmm. to educate their kids. But if you're in that position, I think it's worthwhile. Where do you see Bitcoin end of the year? Uh, no idea. I, I don't make a lot of price predictions uh, because I don't think it's possible to know in the short term. What, what I can tell you in the long term is I think more people will be using digital money. 
whether it's Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or Dash or five other things. Yeah. Like but that's the safest answer. <laughs> it is the safest answer, but I think it's the true yeah, answer. I mean, I, I can I can pick a random number. It will be you know fourteen thousand. Yeah. Like I don't know, but when I I was confident in converting my money into Bitcoin because I believed in the fundamentals of the technology. I, I had to uh, unfortunately use a bank a few months ago and send a wire, and it took me four attempts. Four days and eight thousand dollars in fees. No, yes. eight thousand dollars in fees because I had to do forex between two different currencies. They charged me eight thousand dollars in fees, and it only took me for the pleasure of this eight thousand dollar payment, four attempts, and four days of my time to get this done. And normally I would just send crypto, but in this case it had to be a wire for you know accounting purposes or whatever. And like I was refreshing to see still in 2019 how broken the financial system is and to be in a world in which I don't have to deal with that on a regular basis. That was sort of a rare occasion. But, you know, yeah, we're, we're still adding a lot of value to the world by bringing crypto. Yeah. So I think it's an inevitability because it's just a better system. All right. And let me ask another question. So you, you touched upon the f traditional finance, right? And how broken it is today. So a lot of things have improved and moved on. So if you look at the technology you have at our fingertips, look at the internet, like we could send messages very easily, but we can't send money very easily. Why is that still broken? And decentralized finance is slowly coming about. How quick do you think decentralized finance will actually take storm? Well, I mean, the technology is finally there to really provide uh, decentralized finance in a way that is sort of seamless and the user interfaces are very simple, right? That's what we needed to get to. It was the same with the internet, right? I mean, I remember when you had to type the IP address into the browser, right? If you had a browser, right? And that wasn't something most people were going to figure out, right? It needed to get DNS and, you know, a sort of better browsers and type in google.com. And that was the interface that unleashed the internet for most people. Right, was when it got to that level of simplicity. And we're getting pretty close. So there's groups like Cointext that now you can text crypto to somebody's phone number. They don't have to download an app. There's no learning curve. They don't have to deal with addresses. Just send it to somebody's phone number. Like It's getting that easy, right? And we're seeing more projects. I'm sure the Libra interface next year will be very simple, right? It's going to live inside of WhatsApp and Messenger and all these things. So we're getting pretty close to that type of moment. Right now there's, call it 50 million people with a blockchain wallet of one flavor or another, but it's been doubling to tripling every year. So when do we get to half a million or half a billion users? Probably end of next year, something like that, based on the current growth rates. I mean, maybe sooner. If Libra released to a billion people, yeah. right, in six or 12 months, then you know, you've got Telegram coming out to 200 million users for them. Kakao has 50 million users. Line has 200 million users. All these platforms, right? I mean, there's a half a billion users right there that are releasing in the next six, 12 months to these large user bases. So I think we're going to get there pretty quick, faster than people expect. All right. So if there's something that you'd like to let the audience know, what would it be? Uh, get involved. You know, the, the thing that I love so much about blockchain is it's an interactive sport. Mm -hmm. So yeah, right. you can CPU mine on top of Pegnet. You can get involved by buying your first crypto on Coinbase or whatever your favorite exchange is. You can really learn about this technology. And let's say it's 1998. It would have been a wonderful thing to learn about the internet 
even if you didn't decide to go into that industry full time, you would have understood more about the industries it would change. You wouldn't have spent your time trying to get into a newspaper job or a magazine job or whatever. That thing that you knew was pretty obviously going to be disrupted. And so get involved. It's, It's so refreshing to have something where it's all open source. There's no secrets or proprietary stuff. It's all right there for you to learn. So even learn listening to this podcast is a great step to learn about the industry, but there's so many resources out there to get involved. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, David. If somebody wanted to get in touch, how could they get in touch? I'm pretty easy to find. Got my emails and such uh, listed on my public personal website. So davidajohnston.me. So just go to davidajohnston.me and you can see projects I'm working on, a link to my Medium posts, my link to my Twitter, and where to hit me up at YGC or Factum or whatever context. Great stuff. Thank you so much, David. 